electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford. Deirdre is off today. Uh, This morning, stocks coming off their worst drop in weeks. As you know, investors eyeing a rate hike tomorrow. That could be the Fed's biggest in decades. If Coinbase is anything to go off of, there's more pain to come, at least for crypto. Announcing some layoffs, we'll get some more on that. But that said, not all of tech's created equal from Oracle's big win to Deutsch's call on Apple today. We've got the street's top tech picks this hour, John. Yeah, let's start with a big winner this morning, Oracle. That stock surging up about 9% after locking in a beat on the top and bottom lines. License revenue, a big driver for the quarter. Two nine-figure deals, Oracle mentioned. Uh, It's evidence the company's push to move customers to the cloud, gaining some traction. CEO Safra Katz saying she sees their cloud business growing more than 30% in constant currency in 2023. All that good news coming despite these current macro challenges, Carl. You know, I was wondering how Oracle was going to fare given the strength we saw in MongoDB, which is sort of this cloud database upstart. Uh, the upside surprise in Oracle revenue, $240 million above the constant currency guide. That's almost as big as all of MongoDB's revenue for the quarter that they just reported, $285 million. So I guess a couple ways to look at that. It shows the uh, overall size of Oracle. Of course, Oracle does a lot more than just database, but also the growth opportunity for some of these scrappier players. And despite the macro backdrop, there still is demand for this infrastructure technology. Yeah, uh, Morgan Stanley today, John, positive read on software and IT demand. But they point out that the pushback is that the beat was driven by legacy license strength uh, with some upside from some very big SaaS vendors. They also don't break out the Cerner contribution, makes things a little cloudier than they might be otherwise. Haha, cloudier, yes. I mean, <laughs> a, year, a year, 18 months ago, even a couple years ago, weakness uh, kind of year over year on the cloud side would have been really bad, bad, bad. But it just seems like... You know, it, the street just wants to see strength coming from somewhere. It doesn't matter. Yeah, a little weakness in the cloud, fine. But upside overall, showing that there's demand for this technology, that is positive. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Oracle, despite being up around 9% right now, 8.5%, this is where it was trading in March, April of 2021. And, you know, I was looking. It's the same thing for Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Tesla, NVIDIA, all of them are trading about where they were in March or April of 2021. So I wonder if this is one of those men in black scenarios where, you know, you just forget everything that (laughs) happened over the past five quarters. You know, that's where the market's sitting right now. Of course, we have to wait and see what the Fed says, what more data we get. But a lot of these stocks that had been favorites, you know, if you just forget the past five quarters, everything's fine. Right. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones and the, and the pen in the pocket. Yep. Uh, Oracle, of course, is the bright spot today. But the software sector was not safe from the sell off yesterday. How do you protect your portfolio? Our next guest is calling Microsoft ServiceNow and Workday his top defensive picks in the sector. Here to discuss Wells Fargo senior analyst Michael Turin. Michael, it's great to have you. Are we do we consider Oracle a bellwether uh, at this point? Yeah, I mean, look, thanks for having me on again. I, I appreciate it. I, I think it, we've said that there are a lot of platforms within software that are well positioned to take advantage of vendor consolidation. So if there's one thing that starts happening in a downturn and CFOs start to sharpen their pencils and look at, hey, we're working with 100, 100 plus software vendors often. Is there an opportunity to sort of reconcile that list? And that's where some of the large cap bellwethers, I think, are more likely to see continued strength. That's why we highlighted the defensive picks that you named. And Oracle would certainly fit in that bucket. But we don't we don't cover the name. Right. Uh, I, I we'll get to Michael. I guess two questions. One is what what thread connects Microsoft now and Workday? And when you do listen to Oracle talk about shorter invoice durations, potentially pressuring cash flow down the road, are these names yep. that are immune to that kind of dynamic? 
Not immune, but I think better mitigated, right? So these, these are businesses that I think have a few things working well for them. Number one, um, significant degree of visibility. They have incumbency with existing customers. That goes a long way towards maintaining good customer relationships and capturing better spend. Each of them have some merchandising capabilities. Microsoft is along the strongest at this. They can lean into cybersecurity, lean into, lean into opportunities like collaboration and, and Teams telephony and give more, more for less, effectively squeezing out some of the other vendors. So certainly not immune, but I would, if, if, if I were taking a defensive position and we've said, this is our, our bucket for defense, we don't think the choppy waters that we're seeing in the markets are likely to go away at least throughout the, the, the summer period upcoming. Um, you know, we, we think those names are better positioned and, and from a multiple perspective, our pricing in a pretty dire recessionary scenario already. Um, pretty dire recessionary scenario. Uh, so depending on what we get tomorrow, language-wise, out of the Fed, I mean, this 75 basis point uh, hike expectation, I mean, I, I guess that's now built in based on what we saw yesterday. But what do you think software has to, to lose or to gain, depending on what we hear yeah. from there? Yeah, I mean, look, some of the macro stuff, I, I think we've needed just some degree of resolution around the uncertainty that's happening there. We've said... Uh, the macro data points just keep worsening, even though the software fundamentals are holding up quite strongly. So I think we just need some resolution. I think investors, by and large, are now asking the Fed to take a heavier hand. Um, if there's a sort of a, a larger move, at least that shows that there's stronger, stronger uh, conviction around um, making sure that we can curb some of the inflationary pressures that are playing through in the market. Um, look, so what's, what's been amazing is we've called this the game of chicken. I think investors have been telling us that, hey, the fundamentals are deteriorating in software, but we're just not seeing it. By and large, Q1 earnings season was much better than feared. Um, hardly any companies took the opportunity to reset expectations for the coming year. They're telling you we have good visibility. This trend towards digitization is not going anywhere. So I think the first thing we need to see is just some resolution of some uncertainty. Ideally, inflationary pressures start to lighten. Um, the, the Fed it conveys with, with better certainty um, what's ahead, and investors can kind of then go into a look forward mode instead of a look 24 hours ahead, which unfortunately feels like where everyone's at in this very myopic <laughs> sort of near-term focus right now. Yeah, what, what do you make of this? I don't know, Michael, if you notice the same thing. If you uh, look at a lot of software names and if you just rewind the clock five or six quarters, so yeah. many of them are trading right about where they were five or six quarters ago. To me, like yeah. all the drops just feel, you know, they look kind of painful and, and maybe yeah. arbitrary in a way, but it's it's interesting that if you look March, April for for some stocks, and then for the the smaller caps, maybe also in the mid cap range, one more quarter yeah. before that, that's about where they were. Any anything in particular yeah. investors should take away from that? Well, I, I'll say a couple of things. Number one is that software is now trading in aggregate at around five times next twelve months revenue. That's been a fairly comfortable backstop. There have been a lot of ways for investors to make money if you choose high quality companies at those levels. And the good news relative for those that are starting with a fresh perspective is that all of the software companies by and large have traded off similar amounts. So the vast majority of our coverage universe is down 60% year to date. Um, and, and, and so I, I do think that creates opportunity. Um, the other thing you have to consider, John, is just we are rolling numbers forward. So even though you know, the, 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 the rewind the clock is not as far as one might intuitively think given how far these moves are, these companies have been compounding free cash flow revenue at 20, 30, for some companies, 40%. So the valuation levels are becoming much more compelling. I think Workday is at the lowest uh, valuation level we've seen since the company IPO'd. And, and that's consistent across uh, a number of companies in software too. So you are getting I think better opportunities for those that can take a, a longer term stance here under the view that the trends towards digitization aren't going anywhere. We just need some resolution and ideally um, some sense of, of, of what's ahead. Finally, um, and I know our, our focus is software this morning, but when we talk about incremental signs of weakness in enterprise, others argue it is showing up. Uh, in software and semis, we got a, a downgrade of HPE today at a competitor. Um, would you would you allow that there are some things in corporate America that are uh, be, being considered expendable? Yeah, no question. I, I certainly don't want to paint the picture that the macro is is not changing. Um, I, I think this is a situation where you you're, you have the haves and the have-nots. We've pointed to a selective basket of names which we think are better positioned to withstand. 
um, any macro choppiness in software. Um, but no question, things are changing. The first culprit I would point to is Europe. Um, no question, we're hearing signs of just sales cycles slowing. Um, some deals pushing further out, more concerns around cybersecurity, given all that's taking place there. Um, so no question, the deal environment is not the same as it was two years ago. Um, but I, I think there are a number of compelling offsets for um, a number of software companies currently. So while things are changing, we're asking to what degree and what the stock's down 60%, but the ability to hit targets still remaining relatively intact for these companies, it doesn't feel quite as bleak as what the market's pricing in here currently. Uh, Michael, that's a great setup. Appreciate that very much. Uh, Michael Turner yeah, talking thanks. some defensive plays in software, John. Yeah, and let's talk thanks. even more software. Our next guest predicts more pain ahead for the sector, but sees value in names with free cash flow support, including Datadog, Snowflake, and CrowdStrike. Joining us now, Alternative Capital Partner, Jamin Ball, which is a great name for the NBA Finals. <laughs> I, I imagine you're probably a Warriors fan. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so... Uh, looking at software, not basketball, uh, for a moment again, what are the names that you particularly think have strength in this environment uh, and, and what should investors really stay away from still? Yes, look, I think what I've been excited about when it comes to software is what I've always been excited about, which is market leaders who are early in their S-curves delivering profitable growth, right? When I look at software, the secular trends to the cloud and in particular, the trends to cloud infrastructure and cloud data infrastructure, it, those aren't slowing. If the last 10 years have been about the move to cloud application software, I'd argue the upcoming 10 are going to be about the shift to cloud data infrastructure, right? And names we're seeing in those categories are doing something incredibly unique, which is delivering mature free cash flow margins of, of 20, 30%, while also growing 60, 70, 80% plus, right? And so businesses that show that they don't have to wait until mature cycles of their life cycle to get to free cash flow is something that's incredibly unique. And I think there are a lot of tailwinds that aren't slowing yeah. that, are, that will continue over the next right, 10 years. But, and I don't know, one of the two, a lot of these companies are the types of high growth names that just a couple months ago, people were running away from quickly. So is this just a valuation issue where enough of them have come down to levels where you know it's worth taking a flyer or how do you sort of rationalize the market tends to turn against these kinds of companies um, in a rising rate environment, and, and you know, by the day, there seem to be questions about, oh, well, you know, a few days ago, we thought 50 basis points was the ceiling. Now, maybe, you know, certain, almost certainly one, maybe two 75 basis point hikes. Yes, look, there are things that are outside these companies' control, particularly the macro around rates, um, that are going to affect these businesses' valuation. But the iron laws is really free cash flow, and companies that can deliver that right, are ones that I believe will present compelling opportunities um, for the foreseeable future. Right now, you, you have to look at the macro. And for software assets in particular, I view those as, as long duration assets, which means their present value today is heavily dependent upon free cash flow generated in the future, right? Sometimes three, four, five plus years out. And as interest rates rise, the discount rate we apply to those future free cash flows goes up, which, which said another way, makes them worth less today. And so that's what we've been seeing over the last four, five, six months. And I'd really categorize it as a normalization. We had valuation and multiples up in the stratosphere over the last 18 months as rates went to zero. And we're normalizing back down. And yes, we've overshot kind of the long-term average. We're about you know 30% below what I view as the long-term sustainable average for software multiples. But we have peak uncertainty both as it relates to rates and peak uncertainty as it relates to fundamentals of software in a potential down market, you know, particularly when we have new business models, right, like consumption that are not battle tested. Uh, and so we can speculate how defensive and how resilient we think they will be, but we won't have data to back that up for a few more quarters. And so you have peak uncertainty on two different really key vectors that make it tough for new investors to jump in now. Yeah, and because you don't expect any clarity around rates, maybe for another couple of quarters, 
I mean, one thing's for sure, if anyone's going to be as aggressive as you are suggesting uh, and, and buy these names in this period, you're going to have to go through a period where you are going to be trying to look past buyer's remorse, I imagine. Yes, it, it, it's a choppy market for sure, right? The incremental data points we're getting on inflation, which are a key input, right, to then rates, are getting worse, not better, right? And, and so there will be incremental choppiness there. Um, and then at the same time, we have not seen earnings revisions as part of a down market. Right? Generally, in a recession and down markets, companies tighten budgets, they freeze budgets, which then impacts spend uh, on software. And we haven't seen negative earnings revisions yet. Again, it is a debate, will we, and to what magnitude, and to what magnitude will best and breed mission critical software businesses be impacted by these revisions um, versus not at all. But I think the base case is we'll see them, there will be a reaction, and then we won't be able to prove the kind of the counterfactual in terms of how resilient these models will be for a couple quarters, right? Probably not yeah. until Q4 earnings, which will be early 2023. I want to take a weird turn and ask you about talent because uh, there are a lot of employees of a lot of these companies that are uh, not happy, certainly about their compensation right now, right? Because it tends to be in stock. However, this is a great time, I imagine, to join one of these companies fresh with the stock price where it is right now. So while some people might want more cash, I imagine uh, people who are getting a new job at a HashiCorp or you know a MongoDB, et cetera, would be <laughs> a lot more excited perhaps about having a significant amount of their compensation in equity. Um, to what extent does that play out positively, you think, for these companies that might already have a good position in the multi-cloud uh, environment where they're establishing themselves? Look, I, I think in down markets, the best businesses will expand the gap and expand their market share relative to competitive peers, right? Spend uh, consolidates amongst best of breed vendors in these periods. And while, yes, these stocks are down, I think it, it does you know, present compelling opportunities for the future, right? But like most markets over the last 18 months, a rising tide lifted all boats and there was less right, dispersion amongst you know, who rises proportionally more than the others. Right? I think equally right now, uh, we've seen less dispersion in terms of who gets whacked, right? We, we've all, all software companies are falling 50, 60, 70% plus. Right. But the next 18 months, we're really going to see who is set up for the next decade plus of durable, profitable growth. And for company or for employees join, joining those businesses now, I, I think it does present a compelling upside again over the long term. The short term, I expect uh, some choppiness. Yeah, some choppiness uh, seems pretty certain. Jamin, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. When we come back, layoffs, liquidations, and some chilly demand. Coinbase's crypto winter warning coming up next. Tech Check is just getting started. Go check on some IT hardware. Deutsche shuffling its ratings on what it calls macro environmental fears, starting with Apple. They do cut their target from 200 down to 175. They downgrade HPE to hold on some spending worries. And on the flip side, what does Deutsche like? Analysts are bullish on NetApp. They're expecting growth there to accelerate in the first half of next year. John, I think their target on uh, HPE goes to 16. Um, a lot of these calls, as we've said, last few weeks, driven more about the macro than the individual company result itself. Yeah, indeed. Well, now let's talk crypto. Tech layoffs gaining steam as those crypto companies start to cut ranks in what some are calling a new crypto winter. In the last week alone, Crypto.com, Peter Thiel's backed uh, BlockFi, and now Coinbase, all announcing they are cutting their workforces. Kate Rooney joins us with the latest. Kate? Hi, John. Yeah, Coinbase plans to lay off 18% of its workforce. That nets out to about 1,100 people. CEO Brian Armstrong telling employees in an email this morning, quote, we appear to be entering a recession after a 10-plus year economic boom. He says the company, quote, grew too quickly, and Coinbase needs to manage its burn rate and increase efficiency. He says 
Quote, it's now clear that they overhired. I also sat down with Coinbase Chief Operating Officer Emily Choi last week ahead of this news. She said it was difficult but a necessary decision. Points to the economic backdrop right now and says Coinbase has survived similar downturns before. Choi also says she's looking to coach employees who may be frustrated by the stock price to focus more on the long term. Coinbase is a long-term play. And I think that when you think about companies that are in new categories, much in the same way that Amazon or Tesla was back in the day, you're going to have a challenging uh, environment, especially in a risk-off environment, both for employees and investors. That said, we have very deep conviction in the long-term value of the stock. And so we think that anyone who makes an investment, whether they're an employee or an investor, will have a handsome return over the longer term. Coinbase had put a pause on hiring and then two weeks later extended that, rescinding some job offers and then going a step further with the news today. It comes amid an 80 percent drop in Coinbase's stock this year and a crash we've seen in crypto prices. J.P. Morgan also downgrading the stock ahead of the news this morning and cutting its price target analysts there right about the need for Coinbase management to lower costs and more potential downside for the stock if crypto markets don't stabilize. John, back to you. Okay, thanks. Well, there's a lot of negative sentiment out there. Uh, Prices are down. So what to do with the crypto space? What happens to Coinbase and others? Castle Island Ventures' Nick Carter joins us now to discuss alongside Moffat Nathanson's Lisa Ellis. Um, Lisa, this talk about the long term in crypto. Crypto, you know, Bitcoin just came to be, right, in, in 2009, right? So it's been a product of this bull market uh, post, um, you know, recession. Uh, and so I wonder how do you even gauge where this goes from here, especially since some of the fundamental ideas about it, the digital gold thing, the inflation hedge thing, have, have been disproven in the recent market. Uh, It's a fair point, meaning uh, crypto essentially came to being or Bitcoin certainly came to being by uh, no coincidence in the midst of the financial crisis as a means for creating a global decentralized currency that would be free from some of the vagaries of the financial markets. So we don't know exactly what will happen. However, we've certainly seen even over the last, you know, 14 year period, um, uh, four or five major crypto winters where we've gone um, kind of repetitively through these big boom bust cycles in crypto. And uh, if history is a guide, it's not um, uncommon to see an 80% drop peak to trough in the value of Bitcoin. We're down, I think, about 65, 66% now. So it's not inconceivable that we'd see uh, a further leg down. But typically, or historically at least, the troughs have still landed four or five times higher than the prior trough. So meaning the last trough was only at about $4,000 for Bitcoin. That was only three years ago. Uh, And uh, and so, you know, it's not at all crazy. We could still see a leg down and then, you know, basically go through a winter period, which often lasts 18 months to two years um, before we see another surge in crypto asset values. Right. Um, I wouldn't, though, lose sight of the fact, though, that ongoing investment into the underlying technology continues, you know, unabated throughout that time frame. But it's interesting, Nick, that kind of assumes that the crypto system is working. And so, you know, we can talk about the financial crisis and, you know, mortgage-backed securities and just kind of the revelation that the system as as that system wasn't working. Perhaps that led to this desire for a decentralized financial system, but for all of the turmoil in the markets over the past several quarters, uh, the markets seem to have held up pretty well. Uh, But in crypto, that's where we've seen these systemic problems, whether we're talking about stable coins, Celsius this week. I mean, is the crypto market itself structured in a healthy way? It's experiencing a flush of leverage from the system. And you're right. Far too much leverage was built up. And a lot of these ideas uh, were pretty unsuitable. I mean, um, a stable coin that's not fully reserved like Terra, uh, a lending platform like Celsius that puts user funds in extremely risky DeFi protocols. Uh, Those ideas are being challenged by the market. Uh, The underlying actual technology here is is functioning just fine. Uh, Whether it's Bitcoin itself, nothing has changed whatsoever, or whether it's the architecture of decentralized finance, um, it's still working 24-7. 
Uh, and, you know, if you look at Bitcoin, it's fundamentally a vote of no confidence uh, in the monetary system. And I'm not seeing a ton of cause for confidence in that monetary system. So certainly, you know, we're all selling off here alongside all kinds of other risk assets. Uh, but sort of the core premise to me remains intact, uh, you know, just wanting to protest uh, the sort of uh, extremely arbitrary nature of the sort of established monetary system, uh, even if uh, Bitcoin, you know, suffering heavily here. Hey, Lisa, you know, when we think about history and all those peaks and troughs that we've been thinking about and watching uh, for the past decade, let's say, uh, some argue have happened in a, a period of easy money, cheap money, uh, a lot of stimulus on the fiscal side. And if that period is truly over, I just wonder how we ever get back to a high watermark. Is history relevant? Uh, well, um, it may take longer, right? You know, potentially uh, the, you know, venture ultimately the ultimately as much as they're very speculative assets, the crypto tokens are a proxy of a form for the underlying projects. You know, it's, it's, it's a sort of a pseudo form of venture capital money, right? Funding the underlying projects in crypto technology. And that technology continues to advance, that funding, you know, good projects will still bubble up. It, so I would think of it sort of along the same lines as mirroring a bit of what we're likely to see in venture funding, where it may pull back. Um, there may be more stringent uh, restrictions on which projects really get funded. We may see tokens right fall away entirely, probably quite a number of them. Um, but through that, we'll likely still see some of the, um, you know, more uh, that the ongoing underlying advancement in the technology. If you believe um, in uh, in the, the the power of crypto technology in all these different use cases, whether it's decentralized finance, whether it's for NFTs and asset tracking, uh, uh, or whether it's for forms of payment, for example, uh, cross-border or as an alternative to fiat, right? Those underlying use cases have still been the same use cases as they were 10 years ago. Right. And the technology in the background continues to progress, whereas while the market goes through these big swings. My, my question, Nick, when it comes to that, and I get it, you know, the value of blockchain overall, it reminds me in a way of open source, right? 20 plus years ago when people are saying, this is the future of software and therefore bet on, you know, Linux and, and, and these are, you know, Red Hat, these other companies to beat Microsoft. They didn't beat Microsoft. Microsoft adopted open source. The entire software industry adopted open source and a lot of big players got bigger because of that. Why are these various cryptocurrencies going to be the future just because blockchain is the future and what system has to get kind of built into crypto to, to replace some of the stable coin and, and other systemic issues that have cropped up during this time? Yeah, actually, I think your analogy is, is pretty apt, honestly. Um, you know, Linux is, is the, the most used operating system in the world today, um, e even though, and, and it was adopted by big, big tech companies, right? Um, similarly, I expect uh, the financial industry to adopt uh, these open architectures proposed by public blockchains because they're more interoperable, because they're more convenient, uh, and because fundamentally open architectures win. They give consumers what they want. Uh, it's like open banking on steroids. Uh, stable coins, you know, in my opinion, are far superior to uh, sending wires or using uh, exclusionary uh, financial rails like a PayPal or something like that. Um, and so I, I think it's just the the force of that architecture that is going to power them to win. Now, of course, there's issues there, and uh, we've seen really poor implementations of stable coins. Uh, there certainly are some much more regulated and functional ones that are fully reserved and backed. Uh, and I think we can lean into that uh, and support those projects, and they'll continue to do extremely well. But yeah, I, th I think fundamentally, the key innovation here is an open financial and per permissionless financial architecture uh, which is why this this will ultimately be persuasive. Yeah, I'm just not sure yet whether that means you bet on uh, Bitcoin or Coinbase or Visa, um, but we'll continue to track it. Uh, Lisa, Nick, thank you. Time now for a news update. Let's get to Tyler Matheson.
John, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. Inflation is still running hot. I probably don't have to tell you that. But there was at least a modicum of good news in this morning's producer price index report. Headline inflation was up eight-tenths of one percent last month. That matched expectations. And the so-called core rate, uh, figured without including food and energy, was up a little less than expected. That's often a predictor of the future. Still, the producer prices were up. Get this, 10.8% in May compared with a year ago. FedEx is delivering in a big way for investors today. The stock's surging after the company increased its quarterly dividend to $1.10 per share from 75 cents. That is a 53% increase. FedEx also said it would add shareholder returns as an additional factor in determining executive compensation. Spirit Airlines says it is talking with JetBlue about JetBlue's recently sweetened $3.4 billion takeover offer. Spirit has been rebuffing JetBlue's overtures while moving ahead with its plans to merge with the parent of Frontier Airlines. Now, JetBlue's most recent offer increased a breakup fee by $150 million to $350 million if a signed deal doesn't win regulatory clearance. Spirit says it will make a final decision by the end of the month. Folks, back to you. All right, T, thanks very much. Uh, coming up next, some beaten up tech names with a silver lining as the NASDAQ sits right around the flat line and the S&P a moment ago just barely takes out Monday's low. We're back in a few minutes. Go check on some IT hardware. Deutsche shuffling its ratings on what it calls macro environmental fears, starting with Apple. They do cut their target from 200 down to 175. They downgrade HPE to hold on some spending worries. And on the flip side, what does Deutsche like? Analysts are bullish on NetApp. They're expecting growth there to accelerate in the first half of next year. John, I think their target on uh, HPE goes to 16. Um, a lot of these calls, as we've said, last few weeks, Driven more about the macro than the individual company result itself. Yeah, indeed. Well, now let's talk crypto. Tech layoffs gaining steam as those crypto companies start to cut ranks in what some are calling a new crypto winter. In the last week alone, Crypto.com, Peter Thiel's backed uh, BlockFi, and now Coinbase, all announcing they are cutting their workforces. Kate Rooney joins us with the latest. Kate? Hi, John. Yeah, Coinbase plans to lay off 18% of its workforce. That nets out to about 1,100 people. CEO Brian Armstrong telling employees in an email this morning, quote, we appear to be entering a recession after a 10-plus year economic boom. He says the company, quote, grew too quickly and Coinbase needs to manage its burn rate and increase efficiency. He says, quote, it's now clear that they overhired. I also sat down with Coinbase chief operating officer Emily Choi last week ahead of this news. She said it was difficult but a necessary decision, points to the economic backdrop right now and says Coinbase has survived similar downturns before. Choi also says she's looking to coach employees who may be frustrated by the stock price to focus more on the long term. Coinbase is a long term play. And I think that when you think about companies that are in new categories, much in the same way that Amazon or Tesla was back in the day, you're going to have a challenging uh, environment, especially in a risk-off environment, both for employees and investors. That said, we have very deep conviction in the long-term value of the stock. And so we think that anyone who makes an investment, whether they're an employee or an investor, will have a handsome return over the longer term. Coinbase had put a pause on hiring and then two weeks later extended that, rescinding some job offers and then going a step further with the news today. It comes amid an 80 percent drop in Coinbase's stock this year and a crash we've seen in crypto prices. J.P. Morgan also downgrading the stock ahead of the news this morning and cutting its price target analysts there right about the need for Coinbase management to lower costs and more potential downside for the stock if crypto markets don't stabilize. John, back to you. Okay, thanks. Well, there's a lot of negative sentiment out there. Uh, prices are down. So what to do with the crypto space? What happens to Coinbase and others? Castle Island Ventures' Nick Carter joins us now to discuss alongside Moffat Nathanson's Lisa Ellis. Um, Lisa, this talk about the long term in crypto. Crypto, you know, Bitcoin just came to be right in, in 2009, right? So it's been a product of this bull market uh, post- um, 
you know, recession. Uh, and so I wonder how do you even gauge where this goes from here, especially since some of the fundamental ideas about it, the digital gold thing, the inflation hedge thing, have, have been disproven in the recent market. Uh, yeah, it's a fair point, meaning uh, crypto essentially came to being, or Bitcoin certainly came to being by uh, no coincidence in the midst of the financial crisis as a means for creating a global decentralized currency that you know would be free from some of the vagaries of the financial markets. So we don't know exactly what will happen. However, we've certainly seen even over the last you know 14 year period, um, uh, four or five major crypto winters where we've gone um, kind of repetitively through these big boom bust cycles in crypto. And uh, if history is a guide, it's not um, uncommon to see an 80% drop peak to trough in the value of Bitcoin. We're down, I think, about 65, 66% now. So it's not inconceivable that we'd see uh, a further leg down. But typically, or historically at least, the troughs have still landed four or five times higher than the prior trough. So meaning the last trough was only at about $4,000 uh, for Bitcoin. That was only three years ago. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, it's not at all crazy. We could still see a leg down and then, you know, basically go through a winter period, which often lasts 18 months to two years um, before we see another surge in crypto asset values. Right. Um, I wouldn't, though, lose sight of the fact, though, that ongoing investment into the underlying technology continues, you know, unabated throughout that time frame. But it's interesting, Nick, that kind of assumes that the crypto system is working. And so, you know, we can talk about the financial crisis and, you know, mortgage-backed securities and just kind of the revelation that the system as as that system wasn't working. Perhaps that led to this desire for a decentralized financial system, but for all of the turmoil in the markets over the past several quarters, uh, the markets seem to have held up pretty well. Uh, but in crypto, that's where we've seen these systemic problems, whether we're talking about stable coins, Celsius this week. I mean, is the crypto market itself structured in a healthy way? It's experiencing a flush of leverage from the system. And you're right, far too much leverage was built up. And a lot of these ideas uh, were pretty unsuitable. I mean, uh, a stable coin that's not fully reserved like Terra, uh, a lending platform like Celsius that puts user funds in extremely risky DeFi protocols. Uh, those ideas are being challenged by the market. Uh, the underlying actual technology here is, is functioning just fine. Uh, whether it's Bitcoin itself, nothing has changed whatsoever, or whether it's the architecture of decentralized finance, um, it's still working 24-7. Uh, and you know, if you look at Bitcoin, it's fundamentally a vote of no confidence uh, in the monetary system. And I'm not seeing a ton of cause for confidence in that monetary system. So certainly, you know, we're all selling off here alongside all kinds of other risk assets. Uh, but sort of the core premise to me remains intact, uh, you know, just wanting to protest uh, the sort of uh, extremely arbitrary nature of the sort of established monetary system, uh, even if uh, Bitcoin, you know, is suffering heavily here. Hey, Lisa, you know, when we think about history and all those peaks and troughs that we've been thinking about and watching uh, for the past decade, let's say, uh, some argue have happened in a, a period of easy money, cheap money, uh, a lot of stimulus on the fiscal side. And if that period is truly over, I just wonder how we ever get back to a high watermark. Is history relevant? Uh, well, um it may take longer, right? You know, potentially uh, the you know venture ultimately the ultimately as much as they're very speculative assets, the crypto tokens are a proxy of a form for the underlying projects. You know, it's it's, it's a sort of a pseudo form of venture capital money, right? Funding the underlying projects in crypto technology, and that technology continues to advance, that funding, you know, good projects will still bubble up. It, so I would think of it sort of along the same lines as mirroring a bit of what we're likely to see in venture funding, where it may pull back. Um, there may be more stringent uh, restrictions on which projects really get funded. We may see tokens, right, 
fall away entirely, probably quite a number of them. Um, but through that, we'll likely still see some of the, um, you know, more uh, that the ongoing underlying advancement in the technology. If you believe um, in uh, in the, the the power of crypto technology in all these different use cases, whether it's decentralized finance, whether it's for NFTs and asset tracking, uh, uh, or whether it's for forms of payment, for example, uh, cross-border or as an alternative to fiat, right? Those underlying use cases have still been the same use cases as they were 10 years ago. Right. And the technology in the background continues to progress, whereas while the market goes through these big swings. My, my question, Nick, when it comes to that, and I get it, you know, the value of blockchain overall, it reminds me in a way of open source, right? 20 plus years ago when people are saying, this is the future of software and therefore bet on you know, Linux and, and, and these are you know, Red Hat, these other companies to beat Microsoft. They didn't beat Microsoft. Microsoft adopted open source. The entire software industry adopted open source and a lot of big players got bigger because of that. Why are these various cryptocurrencies going to be the future just because blockchain is the future and what system has to get kind of built into crypto to, to replace some of the stable coin and, and other systemic issues that have cropped up during this time? Yeah, actually, I think your analogy is, is pretty apt, honestly. Um, you know, Linux is, is the, the most used operating system in the world today, um, e even though and, and it was adopted by big, big tech companies, right? Um, similarly, I expect uh, the financial industry to adopt uh, these open architectures proposed by public blockchains because they're more interoperable, because they're more convenient, uh, and because fundamentally open architectures win. They give consumers what they want. Uh, it's like open banking on steroids. Uh, stable coins, you know, in my opinion, are far superior to uh, sending wires or using uh, exclusionary uh, financial rails like a PayPal or something like that. Um, and so I, I think it's just the the force of that architecture that is going to power them to win. Now, of course, there's issues there. And uh, we've seen really poor implementations of stable coins. Uh, there certainly are some much more regulated and functional ones that are fully reserved and backed. Uh, and I think we can lean into that uh, and support those projects and, and they'll continue to do extremely well. But yeah, I, th I think fundamentally, the key innovation here is an open financial and per permissionless financial architecture, uh, which is why this, this will ultimately be persuasive. Yeah, I'm just not sure yet whether that means you bet on uh, Bitcoin or Coinbase or Visa, um, but we'll continue to track it. Uh, Lisa, Nick, thank you. Time now for a news update. Let's get to Tyler Matheson. John, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. Inflation is still running hot. I probably don't have to tell you that. But there was at least a modicum of good news in this morning's producer price index report. Headline inflation was up eight-tenths of one percent last month. That matched expectations. And the so-called core rate, uh, figured without including food and energy, was up a little less than expected. That's often a predictor of the future. Still, the producer prices were up, get this, 10.8 percent in May compared with a year ago. FedEx is delivering in a big way for investors today. The stock's surging after the company increased its quarterly dividend to $1.10 per share from 75 cents. That is a 53% increase. FedEx also said it would add shareholder returns as an additional factor in determining executive compensation. Spirit Airlines says it is talking with JetBlue about JetBlue's recently sweetened $3.4 billion takeover offer. Spirit has been rebuffing JetBlue's overtures while moving ahead with its plans to merge with the parent of Frontier Airlines. Now, JetBlue's most recent offer increased a breakup fee by $150 million to $350 million if a signed deal doesn't win regulatory clearance. Spirit says it will make a final decision by the end of the month. Folks, back to you. All right, T, thanks very much. Uh, coming up next, some beaten up tech names with a silver lining as the NASDAQ sits right around the flat line and the S&P a moment ago just barely takes out Monday's low. We're back in a few minutes.
NASDAQ's flat right about now, but the story of 22 has, of course, been the grind lower. We are coming off a day where the index fell more than 4.5%, down 32% year-to-date. But with great pain might come opportunity. CNBC Pro took a look at the stocks that had fallen the most, that had the best prospects. And Christina Parts-Nevelos has that story. Hey, Christina. I like how you use the word might, but uh, we know the NASDAQ is in rough shape like you talked about, and it fell for the fourth negative session in a row and closed below its 200-day and 50-day moving average. And only eight companies on the NASDAQ 100 would be considered oversold or below true value. And this is according to their low relative strength index, RSI readings. Gilead, Excel, Ren- Energy, Activision, Blizzard make the list, but few others do. Despite the doom and gloom, there are some names to put on your radar. CNBC Pro pulled tech names that are down more than 20% are expected to grow earnings per share by at least 20% this year, have positive free cash flow yields, and are liked by Wall Street analysts with a, a more majority buy ratings. So guess which companies dominated the list? Semiconductors, ST, Micro, NVIDIA, AMD, and Marvell all made the cut. Shares in NVIDIA have fallen more than about 40% this year alone, but is still a Wall Street darling. Nearly 70% of analysts covering the stock ready to buy. The company is expected to grow its earnings per share by more than 20% as well. And you can see it's trending higher, well, NVIDIA today. And then we've got AMD and Marvell. Uh, they have the highest free cash flow yield, which is pretty much free cash flow per share divided by share price. So a higher yield is considered more attractive to investors. 81% of analysts right now have a buy rating on Marvell. And then other names to make the list, software maker Datadog, liked by Wall Street, but its positive free cash flow yield was the lowest of the group, just above about one right now. And one we don't really talk about a lot, consulting firm Accenture. It's not a NASDAQ player, but fits the criteria and has outperformed the S&P 500. Just look at that chart uh, past the previous recessions like the great financial crisis. Carl? That's a good set of Christina. Thank you. Our next guest is uh, pretty neutral on tech overall, looking for names with healthy balance sheets to weather the storm, but does predict the sector could be the first to bounce back if we end up seeing a recession. Joining us this morning, Williamington Trust Head of Investment Strategy, Megan Shu. Megan, it's great to have you. A couple things. You say, look, a recession is quite possible, uh, but the playbook, at least post-war period, has proven that markets tend to bottom even as the economy continues to deteriorate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Carl. So we're definitely, we've raised our recession risks, still not part of our base case, actually, simply because we are starting from such a strong uh, level to begin the year. But the risk of the Fed tightening more aggressively is clearly front and center. Um, But if you look at historical recessions, we've had recessions where the drawdown is at or even less than what we've seen so far. Um, And if you are taking a financial crisis or a COVID-style economic shutdown off the table, then I think something in the 20 to 25 percent drawdown range for the S&P 500 starts to get attractive. And the playbook there is a bit counterintuitive, but those higher beta names, small cap, technology tend to lead us out of the recession. So I think it's time to start getting that list ready and maybe not jumping right in just yet. Um, I think this could take a little while to play out. We have a few more chapters to go, but it's definitely uh, an opportune time to start looking and start maybe legging in over the coming weeks. Right. When you when you think about tech being one of the first sectors to bounce, are we talking consumer tech or enterprise tech or does it need to be that specific? I would think enterprise tech. So what we've seen is a really strong um, period for consumer-facing tech. And that was really related to the COVID and post-COVID period, extraordinary stimulus, really healthy um, balance sheets and excess savings. I think going forward, I'd be focused more on consumer tech. We know that the move to the cloud is still early innings. So that is one area where we think, even if we get a pause in CapEx spending related to technology, I think that is going to resume as soon as companies start to feel a little bit more comfortable. Again, that might take some time, but that is an area where we feel like we're talking about um, rather than demand destruction, a term that we use quite a bit these days, probably, uh, you know, a delay in demand for consumer uh, for enterprise technology, whereas the consumer is probably going to be hunkering down a little bit more, focusing on staples, focusing on energy and food, because those areas Um, of the spending complex are still seeing extraordinary inflation. 
Megan, trying to read between the lines here, I mean, you don't sound that neutral. You sound kind of positive on the right tech names. And, you know, I just don't want investors who are longer term, not who are trying to trade this week and, and make money necessarily, but who are longer term to miss it. I mean, it seems like you're saying you expect some of these names in semiconductors, perhaps like a Qualcomm, a Marvell, uh, that were a lot higher a bit ago and were uh, reporting upside earnings surprises when they were higher that maybe they're worth considering? Well, I think we're neutral. I, I think we're, we're definitely neutral. But the way I would put it is that it's not the time to sell. It's the time to start thinking about buying and what you would want to be buying. So, you know, the, the, the time to sell was a while ago. And I think for our clients who are long-term investors, it's not going to do you much good to try to get out of the market um, in, in big form now, you know, maybe, maybe rotating out of the, some of those names that are not quite as attractive. But remember, when we're thinking about tech, there's been a rolling wave of uh, bear markets, if you will, started with kind of an oversupply, concerns about oversupply and shortages in the semiconductors, and then the reopening trade, which favored cyclicals and value over those stay-at-home tech names. And then valuations got killed and we saw rates move up earlier this year, and now we're in recession fears. So we've already seen a lot of pessimism in the tech sector specifically. Um, and if you look at valuations compared to history, the Russell 1000 growth, which I know is not all tech, um, but it has a lot of that influence, is trading about the 65th percentile versus history. And I think technology is just such an integral part of businesses and the way we live our lives that that seems like a pretty good valuation starting point. I wouldn't be wedded to valuations in this market because we know that there could be some downside revisions to earnings estimates from analysts, and we do expect that. Um, but I would say the time to sell has passed, and now it's time to be patient and think about how you want to be adding uh, in the future. Really thoughtful framework uh, for the kind of period, the crazy period that we're in, Megan. Good to talk to you as always. See you next time. Megan Thank Shim. As tech markets have sold off, Kathy Wood feeling the pain, well, more than most. The SARP ETF shorting her ARC Innovation Fund. Well, that's up more than 90% year to date, while ARC's down 60. How does that work? Hmm. More on today's market action after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back. Despite inflation hitting multi-decade highs, MasterCard giving fodder to the bulls this morning, forecasting that U.S. retail sales will jump 7.5% this back-to-school shopping season, despite, or maybe because of, higher prices. And saying e-commerce is going to grow. Shares expected to pop more than 4% year-over-year and a significant 19% since pre-pandemic summer sales back in 2019. That said, e-commerce names big and small have taken a hit this, uh, this year. Shopify is down more than 70%. Etsy down more than 65%. Amazon, the biggest laggard in FANG behind Netflix, Carl. Um, but, hey, past performance, no guarantee of future results. That kind of means something different in this context, right? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, and we got yet another sell on Netflix today at a benchmark uh, this time, John. But it does seem like there's a bit of a piling on now, especially given so much we don't understand about how the, will, the consumer will turn to streaming for entertainment if things get worse. When we come back, are the best days behind Best Buy? B of A, as we said, cuts the name to neutral. They forecast a possible reversion to pre-COVID growth. And that said, uh, shares are a tad higher in what's not a great tape. Dow's down 117. We mentioned earlier, I got check on one name hit hard by the tech sell-off, and that is Netflix. A benchmark reverts to a sell rating on the streamer after admitting to jumping the gun with their upgrade to hold at the end of last year. Uh, besides some inflation headwinds, they say negative press from member losses make the company a, quote, growth albatross. Stock is the biggest laggard in the S&P this year, as you know, 75% almost off the highs. Stay with us. Big tech regulation heating up again as two massive bills with two very different outcomes face off on Capitol Hill today. Our Elon Moy here is, is here with the latest. Hi, Elon. Well, 
we are at the epicenter of tech lobbying in Washington today, the Rayburn House Office Building. Now, in the room directly behind me, lawmakers are debating a new bipartisan framework for privacy legislation that has eluded Congress for years. Now, this new bill would only allow companies to collect data that is reasonably necessary, proportionate, and limited. It would also create a single national system, but with certain carve-outs for existing laws in some states, and it would tighten the rules around kids. Now, industry is generally on board with this, even though it is still early. They say they would rather deal with one national law than 72 different privacy bills that have been introduced or passed in 37 different states. But right upstairs for me is a completely different story. That's where a different group of bipartisan lawmakers is trying to drum up support for their antitrust bill. Those lawmakers are Representative David Cicilline, a Democrat, and a Republican, Ken Buck. Cicilline said that America is ready for Congress to take action to rein in the abusive power of big tech. So guys, there is not a lot of time between now and the midterms, but clearly there is a big push to get at least one of these bills moving before we get to November. Back to you. Elon, thanks. Uh, look forward to seeing what, if anything, happens there. And now throughout the month of June, we are celebrating Pride Month. Here's our very own Susie Orman telling her story. Susie Orman here, you probably know me as the money lady. But did you know that 51 years ago, when I was only 20, I told everybody that I was a lesbian. I had the courage to stand in my truth, and from that day on, everything in my life started to skyrocket. So don't be afraid to be who you are. Don't be afraid to stand in your truth, and always do it with pride. Take care. One more thing before we go, that's Twitter. Employees there finally getting an all-hands meeting with potential owner Elon Musk. That's on Thursday. It'll be the first time Musk will speak with Twitter's staff since launching his bid to take over the social media company back in April. And maybe in a potentially positive sign for the deal, the stock is up today about, what, three and a quarter percent. But then, Carl, it's still down about four and three quarters for the week so far. Uh, indeed, it's going to be fascinating to get uh, some of the reports of what he tells employees uh, at that meeting, John. Overall, I mean, relatively muted session, and I guess you might expect the market uh, to get a little more cautious in front of the uh, Fed decision tomorrow, John. But it is remarkable how even in the last, say, 72 hours, the notion of a 75 basis point hike is something now that the market has, has priced in. It happened pretty quickly. Yeah, I guess now you wonder how many 75 basis point hikes. What, what's the language around that and to what degree is the market excited about the Fed getting ahead of things and perhaps getting more aggressive, even if that means the landing is a bit bumpier than soft? Yep, uh, indeed. Uh, and now we're getting uh, the, the, no the narrative of job cuts is picking up a little bit more steam. Headline on the wire right now that Compass, uh, the real estate company, cutting about 10 percent of the workforce amid the housing slowdown. So you're going to be faced with a situation where maybe employment does soften even in the face of ongoing rate hikes. We'll find out a lot more uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, the half starts. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.